0: It's been a few weeks since we've been in First Peter, um, so we'll do a little quick kind of back up a little bit and come forward. Most of Chapter One and the first part of Chapter Two in First Peter was really all about what we are in Christ and who we are in Christ, and it was summarized in Chapter Two, Verse Nine and, and Ten, with the words, "But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation." a people have his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were a people, not a people, now you are God's people. Once you were had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's a great place to be in. And on that note, Peter shifted, really, his emphasis, kind of his topic, in verses 11 and and. And 12, all right, there we go. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshy desires that do battle against the soul and maintain good conduct among the non-Christians so that though they now malign you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he appears. I use a little different translation to kind of maybe shake us out of the... uh, Regularity of the ESV on that one. I also like the fact they translated the, uh, the word ethnos as uh, non-Christians. I thought that was an interesting way of looking this, at this as well. This transition of emphasis was signaled by the repetition of the word exiles. The last time we saw that was at the beginning of the letter in the first verse in, Paul, in Peter's salutation. Uh, becoming exiles was and is... The reality of the new birth. It made them and us sojourners and exiles in the very world we were living in when that new birth occurred. Our challenge in this new world is not learning the language or or getting used to different customs that we aren't used to. Uh, our challenge is that it's no longer our home. Our allegiance has changed the kingdom of God. And we need to live lives that reflect that. That's the challenge. That's the hard part. What is our conduct going to be in those things? Well, Peter started out in this discussion. This really is going to be continuing through most of the rest of 1 Peter. Uh, But the first part he starts with was he picked out You know, the idea is centered on the idea that if we're truly a people called out of darkness into his marvelous light and we're still living in darkness, a world of darkness, then it's inevitable we're going to come into conflict with that world. In all kinds of ways, privately, publicly, uh, it's it's all going to be there spiritually, if you want to add that one in. To illustrate this, he chose three relationships from the first century that he that really created a lot of potential difficulties for Christians, for new believers, and the relationships in which they have to relate to believers have to relate to non-believers. That's what's what's common to all of them. They're human institutions of the first century. The first one had to do with non-believing kings and governors ruling over believing subjects. There's going to be some tension in that because the values clearly of those who rule the civic and political life aren't going to be the same. The next one he dealt with was non-believing masters owning believing slaves. Now we don't have slavery and it's interesting that of the slavery various kinds that existed at the time Of uh, Peter wrote, he chose that unique situation of a domestic slave or servant. This is not somebody who can ever get away from their masters. They live in the same house. They're always there. And as we'll see this morning, we're going to talk about non-believing spouses married to believing spouses. That's really the, the context of the topics that we've been talking about here. Now, we don't have imperial governments. We have a lot more say in that than uh, people in the first century. Uh, Like I said, slavery is not something that uh, is in our past, but it's not in our present. Maybe some residue of it is that we need to be aware of, but uh, uh, generally we aren't there. But marriage is still around. (laughs) So the text Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, I've got to do a little level setting here, like we did in the other ones as well, and look at what the context was for a marriage in the first century Mediterranean world. It's very different than what we have today. And I think that's important to keep in mind here. First of all, most marriages were arranged. Marriages in that culture had to do with bringing people together that would enhance the honor or social standing of both families. That was a very important important element of it. But you didn't have a choice. It was set up for you uh, on either side, husband or wife. So that was very different. And we still have that in a lot of parts of the world today. They just don't have it in ours, that we're around all the time. Wives were expected to adopt, the second thing, the religious preferences of their husbands and to confine their social connections to those of their husbands. Now this is a pluralistic religious society. And what was important about it, in their kind of setting, and their way of looking at things, was well, not which ones of the gods you believed, because they were all kind of considered on an equal plane. In fact, that was one of the complaints about Christians is they didn't want to do that, so they were called atheists by the early <laughs> non believer, You know, the secular world referred to Christians as atheists because they didn't believe in all the gods like they should. And so, in this situation, you have wives coming into situations, arranged marriages with husbands who maybe had different religious preferences and they were supposed to conform to those. That was what was expected of them. And they no longer brought a set of friends or contacts from their previous life. They were now to restrict those to just the social contacts and, and, and people they knew from the husband's family. Third point, an orderly home and family life was considered foundational to society in the first century. In fact, on the other side of that, a disordered home was considered a threat to society. Now, that's different than today, too. Uh, we don't seem to care what families are anymore, or that they're solid or not, that they're disordered or ordered. Uh, in fact, the sad kind of situation of our advanced society right now is that we have mostly disordered families, dysfunctional families. The final point, women generally had little social power apart from the social standing of their fathers before they were married and of their husbands after they were married. This was something that had begun to change in the first century. There was a little movement away from this, but for the vast majority of women, that would have been particularly the recipient of this letter that had not changed. That was still the case. Now the first word in what Peter writes here to, to wives, translated likewise or in the same way, uh, really points back to the previous examples. So how is this situation like the previous examples? The first one had to do with government and being subject to government authority the second one had to do with slaves and masters. So how is it alike? What, how are these three things alike? And I think the key to that is to realize that all three situations are similar primarily in the fact that the non-believer occupied the position of social power and social authority, not the believer. The verb, be subject, uh, is the same word we saw in chapter 2, verse 13, where Peter said, commanded, is an imperative, uh, be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake. Most Greek scholars take the following occurrences of this word, be subject, which occurred in chapter 2, verse 18, with slaves, and occurs in here in chapter 3, verse 1, and will occur again in chapter th- 3, verse 5, as extending that idea of command going forward. Now, in the case of the passages that had to do with slaves or servants, domestic servants, and the passage we have here on wives, the verb is in the form of a present passive participle. Now, we all know what that means, so I can go on. Anyway, uh, no, what that means is that it was assumed that the people involved, the believers involved, were being obedient to this command back in chapter 13. It's assumed that they were doing that. So what this meant was that slaves were submitting to their masters. Wives were submitting to their husbands. So that's, that's the assumption. That's the setting. The statement, if some do not obey the word, they may be won over, confirmed the fact that we're talking about a believing wife and a non-believing husband. Here. And it also makes a point of the fact that the resulting potential conversion of the husband is based in a great degree on the behavior or conduct of the wife. That's a big burden. Now that conduct, he goes on to talk about, uh, had to be one that produced a respectful and pure conduct. We'll talk a little bit more about that. What the word translated as respectful we've seen a lot. It's it's, some translations have reverence. It's literally the word fear. It's the same word that was used in chapter two, eighteen of uh, servants: be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. The Greek word phobos, where your word phobia from, uh, fear, was often used to express uh, this idea of reverence respect that was due somebody because they hold a higher position in the society. That's why it's often translated respect in in, uh, English translations. And don't miss the fact, as I reminded us from the words to slaves, that Peter already precluded the idea that Christians get to choose who to extend their respect to. Or to respect everybody. Honor everyone was the exhortation Same idea of uh, chapter 2, verse 17. The qualifier of pure is important here because that's describing the conduct, and it means that that conduct was sincere, in no way phony or manipulative. That takes it a little further, doesn't it? That's a little deeper. You just can't go through the motions. It's supposed to be part of your actual attitude. Now, what's most remarkable to me, I think, about this whole set of instructions that, that, that Peter gave here to wives, believing wives of unbelieving husbands, was he does not order the wife to attend church anyway. And he doesn't say, well, you have permission to just worship privately on your own in the home. You know what he does? He doesn't give us any rules like that. That's uncomfortable. What he does is he says it's left to be worked out between those Christian wives and their own husbands. Boy, now that's uncomfortable. We can't defer it to somebody else. We can't put it off onto somebody else. It's another example, really, of what we see, this this fine balance all through 1 Peter, where he says were to respect the institutions of the society we're in, of the culture we're in, but sometimes that means having that coming at them with different values in ways that are sometimes almost subversive, but it doesn't change how you fit in. Peter continued his instruction. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, in the putting on a gold, ju- gold jewelry or clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The women who were part of the elite Greco-Roman culture uh, had a reputation by this time for... Adorning themselves with these sometimes ridiculous-looking, ostentatious hairdos and uh, wearing lots of gold and jewelry and these you know silk clothes and things, they were advertising their status. Is what they were doing in all this. Um, in the some more extreme cases, they dressed as provocatively as they could sexually. So you had the women who were in the lower statuses, the less elite would imitate them, or try to imitate them. Now, I think it's interesting that both these groups were the regular targets of Greco-Roman social critics, and were often parodies in the dramas that they presented. Uh, Things haven't changed much, I don't think, in many ways. You look at the elite in our culture, and you have some of the same kind of behavior going on. The contrast to this was the phrase, a gentle and quiet spirit. And that actually echoed the pagan ethical writers of the first century. That wasn't new. That wasn't something they had to go upstream at that time. I think that part's harder for our culture than maybe it was for the first century. Because of the context of 1 Peter, this phrase... Uh, gentle and quiet spirit is usually held up as a standard for Christian women. I'm going to argue that that's a New Testament teaching that is a standard for Christian men as well. And I'm going to base that on the fact that this wor- these words gentle and quiet don't occur a lot in the New Testament. The word gentle only occurs three, four times in the New Testament. You have it in this verse we have here, and the rest of them are in Matthew's gospel. You find one of them in Matthew 5, 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Blessed are the meek or the gentle. They shall inherit the earth. And you find it in the words of Jesus in chapter 11 of Matthew, Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." The lexicon definition of the word is pertaining to not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. So it can be translated gentle, humble, considerate, meek in the older, more favorable sense of the word. The other spot that Matthew uses it is he uses it because it's also found in the Greek Old Testament uh, text of Zechariah 9. And Matthew used it to explain the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble. That's how it's translated there. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden." We're going to find the only occurrence of the cognate noun for that verb or that adjective uh, in chapter 3 verse 15. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Same word, same idea. Now the adjective quiet only occurs twice in the New Testament. We have it here, and we have it in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for the kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and, and dignified in every way. Well, none of those passages were exclusively directed to women. They were directed to the church, to all believers let me talk about this a little bit more before we're done but i'm going to leave it with that the next part of the what peter talks about was applied more to women because he's talking about examples from the old testament for this is how the holy women who hoped in god used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as sarah obeyed abraham calling him lord and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening Over the centuries of Jewish interpretation, uh, Sarah came to be thought of or held up as a role model for Jewish wives. By the first century A.D., there was a significant amount of extra-biblical literature that reinforced that uh, for, for Jews. Strictly speaking, in Genesis, Sarah only spoke of Abraham as Lord one time, and it wasn't even in his hearing. She did submit to Abraham's questionable decisions on a couple of occasions uh, where he was supposed to pass herself off as his sister in in Genesis 12 and 20, and they were situations which potentially were dangerous for Sarah. The Lord did protect her. But as I mentioned in the reference when we were talking about slaves, that it was extraordinary that Peter even directed any ethical advice to women. As one commentary noted, it gave, quote, to wives and slaves a moral responsibility and significance that few in the empire would have acknowledged. I'm not sure we think about that very often in this, but that was the case. Peter was encouraging his audience to look back to the traditions of the Old Testament. His audience particularly here is believing wives of unbelieving husbands. For their models, rather than looking to their Greco-Roman culture and the models of the culture around them, They were to view themselves as children of Sarah, in that sense. They were not to disrupt the marriage institutions of the day, but their motivation for submitting to them was to be found in the teachings of Scripture, not in the cultural mores or or expectations. In this case, the Old Testament, because for the first century church, the Old Testament was their Bible. Now Peter wraps up this little discussion or this, this part of this discussion to wives with a somewhat difficult to translate phrase do not fear anything that is frightening. It actually combines two Greek words uh, that uh, were also paired in an important place. In the Gr- you don't find them paired anywhere else but they were paired in the Greek Old Testament version of Proverbs 3.25. So He's saying, okay, you can look to the t- examples of the Old Testament, the noble women of the Old Testament, and you can look to things like Proverbs for your guidance on this. And 325 is interesting. I've got a English translation of the Greek Old Testament uh, that I was going to put up here. These are the two words I was talking about. They end up phrases in most tr- English translations. And you shall not be afraid of intimidation when it comes, nor of attacks of the impious when they approach. For the Lord will be over all your ways, and he will support your foot in order that you may not be unsettled. That's a great comforting verse in this comfort in this situation. Uh, I only know of one English translation that actually suggests that it has something like this. Most of them just say it referenced to proverbs 325 but you read that from the Hebrew text English translation Hebrew text it doesn't not quite as helpful so now Peter's instructions uh, go on and talk you know with this allusion, he talks about the idea he conditions it to conditional thing if you do good which would be conduct expected from a gentle and quiet spirit so he's kind of got this thing all put together here. The final words he has in this little section were directed to the husbands. Now, husbands of believing husbands of non believing wives. Okay, this is always the context in all three of these illustrations. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understandable way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The word translated wives here is the only occurrence of that word in the New Testament. It's not the same word used to translate wives in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, they both have the same root, so it's going to include wives. But this word that we find here is actually probably more of a class idea, a class of all women, a group of all women. So it's going to refer to all females. And in the case that the context specifically that we're looking at here, there would be, it could be wives, daughters, mothers, mothers in law, sisters in law, anybody that's part of your family, living in an extended family, as most people did at this time, in which a Christian man was the paterfamilias. Now, paterfamilias is a Latin phrase that was used to designate the male head of a household and, and the male head of an extended family. In the world of the New Testament, men who occupied this position had practically dictatorial powers over everybody underneath them, everybody in their charge. Whatever the precise situation, whether it's in a bigger family or a smaller setting within that family of a husband and wife, the instruction remains the same for men, for husbands. They're to live in an understanding way. And I think this is interesting, the the idea of this is is a a considerate awareness. And that considerate awareness or understanding way is tied to the idea of a woman as the weaker vessel. Now the phrase could be taken in several ways. One is a view expressed by some ancient writers or contemporary writers of the New Testament who complained about women's moral and intellectual weakness. Another one is a statement of the reality of the physical differences between males and females. A final one, or a third one, is a recognition of the more vulnerable social status of women in the culture of the day. Now, in the institution, human institution of marriage in the first century Mediterranean culture, it included all three. However, Peter's addition of the phrase showing honor put a special focus on the position of relative weakness in the context of first century social standing. Um, Adding that phrase served as an exhortation to men to make an effort to extend honor or respect to the women in their lives, thereby affirming only part of the human cultural expectations or the cultural settings. In other words, we aren't gonna go with the first one. We might go a little bit with the second one, But the third one is what Peter is really focusing on here. This is where the motivation for the Christian is to come from. Peter did not order the husbands, this is an interesting part again too, to exercise the socially acceptable power they had to compel their wives to adopt Christianity. This is important because one of the defining characteristics of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the right of refusal. Nobody can be coerced into the kingdom of God. It doesn't happen that way. Finally, the appropriate conduct of Christian men toward women was reinforced by the reminder that women are heirs with you on the same level, heirs with you of the grace of life. Peter taught his male audience that there could be no artificial division for them between their home life, their public life, and their Christian life. They couldn't say, well, I'm going to, exercise the social standards here, but I'm going to do these things over here. It had to all be based. It had to all be biblical standards first. Now, those things about the institution of marriage that didn't con- contradict or be compromising of biblical standards, they're okay. We'll just accept them as they are. Now, it's a different setting then than it is now, but it's the same kind of decisions that have to be made. It's the same kind of a challenges. That have to be lived out by people individually in their individual settings. Again, Peter didn't give us a lot of nice, neat rules to do this. He gave us these general principles. And here again, Peter is directing us both to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, while also living by motivations and values that are sometimes countercultural, even subversive to the culture. That's where the conflict comes. Now that really completes Peter's look at um, these three potentially troublesome institutions in which believers would have to relate to non-believers. And that included the excursion at the end of chapter 2 of Jesus as the suffering servant of Isaiah. Next week, Marty will start, providing he's up to it, I guess, we'll start getting into a series of more general instructions that aren't so specific to these situations. So we've got a little section that gets finished here. Everybody will continue to build on Peter's guidance for Christian living in a world in which we are exiles and sojourners. So just kind of as a list to go back and look at points that we've seen that Peter has made about what it means to be living as exiles... I kind of put them together here. Hopefully you can see them all. It starts with hope. That was where it started in chapter 1. The idea of compliance and honor has really been a theme of the section we just finished. that started in chapter in chapter 2, verse 13 and finishes up in 3.7. But there will be more of that before we're done. Good doing. I talked about these two or three handful of Greek words that all look the same. Like the first seven, eight letters are all the same. That you find throughout... First Peter that really come down to uh, good doing or or being a good doer. No reputi- rep- retribution or deceit that comes from the example of Jesus and the suffering servant theology, as does trust in God and live to righteousness. A gentle and quiet spirit we just talked about. That's not just for Christian wives; it's for all of us. And we need to stay close to our shepherd and guardian. Again, that's from the Isaiah 53 suffering servant area. (coughs) Now I think what's notable about this list and what really throughout Peter, what's notable about Peter is that he's really concerned with conduct, behavior, uh, what we do both in word and deed in our lives. Not, Not so much what we think what we're doing (coughs) and we're doing this in the presence of people not just on our own every day people we encounter every day not just people in the church this includes our responses and more often you know that are gonna be more automatic we aren't gonna have time to think about them it's just the way we act the way we treat everybody Uh, we are, are not thoughtful or deliberative about these things we often, most of our relationships and our encounters in our lives are just sort of happen. You don't stop and think, okay, what shall I say in response to this? You just do it. Or you act in a certain way in those situations. I'm to pause, dramatic pause here while I get a little drink. Drawing on the work of a Christian philosopher named James K. A. Smith, uh, a writer, Christian writer Trish Warren, wrote recently in one of her books We don't wake up daily and form a way of being in the world from scratch. And we don't think our way through every action of our day. We move in patterns that we have set over time, day by day. These habits and practices shape our loves, our desires, and ultimately, who we are, and what we worship. When we come together as a group as believers, like we do this did here this morning, we are doing this morning to worship and to learn together. We're participating in a pattern, uh, a habit, hopefully for everybody. That's part of a God ordained and Spirit empowered institution, the church is an institution created for the task of transforming us. That's a big job. Well, for me, it's a big job. I'll let you guys decide for yourselves. But we're only together for a very, very small percentage of our time during the week, any given week. For good or bad, most of what forms us comes from our culture. The ways in we grew up, the places we grew up. It comes from our home, family life that we had before and we have now our workplaces, the media we choose to consume, the stuff of our daily habits and lives, our routines, the things we do without consciously thinking of them, without a lot of intention, we just do them. Now, A good example of how this works, this is the way people are designed to work, by the way. Uh, There's a lot of research that's being done right now that's bearing this out that we have a lot of muscle memory that goes on, you know, which is an argument for that we have muscle between our heads but in our, our ears there. But the, uh, the, a good example of how this works is learning how to drive. If you think back, assuming you have learned how to drive, think back to when you learned how to drive. It was hard. It took a lot of concentration. You had to think about this and then this and this and do this and this and this. And how long was it and how many times or hours did you have to spend behind the wheel before you got to the point where you didn't have to think about everything you were doing. You could carry on a conversation with somebody. You could listen to the music and the radio. Don't text. (laughs) Look at scenery a little bit, maybe. How long did that take? And what did it involve? Repetition, practice, habit, that's how everything operates in our lives. That's how we work most of the time. We can sit down and have a you know, high-level, sophisticated, philosophic discussion of worldviews and things like that, but that's not our typical conversation or our typical world, unless you're my wife that has to put up with me. <laughs> this just doesn't happen. We need to make habits of things. I thought i have been thinking a lot about this and the idea of this list of things that Peter has that are all things we do. How can we use a list like that to guide our habits and our practices? How would that look if we were to try to do that on a daily basis? I had to come up with a name, some term to call this thing. And so I came up with the idea of Quotidian worship. Quotidian, that's a word you hear all the time, right? Yeah, I just rolled out it. That's a fun word. I like it. I like it anyway. Uh, quotidian worship. Quotidian means, and I picked it because it was unusual. Quotidian means everyday, commonplace, ordinary. What if we were to use a list like we have from First Peter here as a guide to quotidian worship. What we do every day, what was commonplace, what is ordinary for us. So I'll go through these real quick and I'm going to make some suggestions on how this kind of works. The first one has to do with hope. We start with hope. Uh, Christian hope is not a matter of wishful thinking and naive optimism. The hope for the Bible is an adjective, you know, is a, is a certainty. It's a certainty. We know this is going to happen. And it forms the very purpose of our lives, this hope does. Peter wrote in chapter 1, we are called to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That's the beginning of your faith to the end of your faith covered right there. That's our hope. Warning. If you really focus on that kind of hope, what that is and how it's described by Peter, you're going to become more of an optimist than a pessimist. If you have pessimistic tendencies, it may be telling you something. Compliance and honor. How would that fit? Our behavior toward the cultural institutions around us must be founded on the two commands that Peter has given us. Be subject to every human institution and honor everyone. That's pretty easy to lay out there, but how do we go about doing that? It means that generally we comply with the institutions around us. We go, you know, we accept things as they are, uh, like any expatriate living in a foreign country would. You can't go to England and drive on the opposite side of the street or the one you're used to. Those kinds of things are fine. There are many institutions in a culture. We move in and out of them all the time throughout our lives, or formed by them to a extent, certain extent throughout our lives. And there are so many. In fact, we could spend a long time talking about that. But I decided since we'd already talked about with women adorning, or you know, I would we would pick on that one. But we're going to do it more generally, not just with women. Uh, the idea of uh, there are cultural norms. Are, what, how we are supposed to dress is a cultural institution. What, how we're expected to be in those things. So how can we practice a quotidian worship in what we're wearing? I don't know if you ever thought about it that way. But, <laughs> but the, uh, um, this is an aspect of things that we're part of. Now, it would certainly mean we'd want to avoid practices like those first century elite women that were sexually provocative. That's not going to be a good thing. We want to take out and close. Uh, but we don't want to be unnecessarily extravagant either. Uh, if I came up here with a jacket like Liberace's, that's going to really date me, but uh, you know, it's a little extravagant. Historically, there have always been groups throughout Christian history, uh, like the Amish, the Hutterites, who practice a very strict dress code, uh, sometimes and often frozen in some cultural setting in the past. Um, I admire their dedication, the commitment they make to that. I'm not sure they have fully taken into account the imperative to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Can we be worshipful? and what we pick out to wear in the morning. I think we can, as long as we are thankful for what we have, what God is providing us, and as long as we're not just trying to use that to draw attention to ourselves. It's an act of worship. It's an act of quotidian worship. Most of that we don't think about, do we? I think people in this room, anyway, we don't think about it. Uh, When you get to be my age, you don't even care about it. Mm -hmm. But the um, that's, that's a place we can make it worshipful, an activity, a common activity. Doing good doing. This is a big one. could be a big one again. Peter was pretty clear that when we encounter institutions in conflict that our first response, overwhelmingly, should be to demonstrate good things, to be dem- good doing, to do good for others. Uh, characterized by patient endurance, of course, as he talked about. The principle of honoring everyone never gets set aside. That's gotta be part of this as well. So good doing should permeate our lives. If we're, if we're not in the habit of being kind and generous and compassionate, uh, it would be pretty hard to suddenly change directions in the midst of a cultural confrontation of some kind. Because it's not a habit. It needs to be a habit. This could be at work, it could be in the neighborhood, uh, it could be a grocery store, by eating dinner out at the doctor's office, it doesn't matter where you are. Good doing can be simple as simple as remembering to say thank you to somebody, uh, asking them how their day is going, being a you blight know, conversation, uh, opening a door, helping help somebody carry something that's awkward, uh, and we say, well, isn't it just being courteous? Yes. It is. We can make it an act of quotidian worship because when we do these things and say these things, we're acting as representatives of the kingdom of God. We're, not, we're foreigners. We're telling people what the kingdom of God is like, what our country is like that they don't know anything about. And we can do it in these little ways. No retribution or deceit. Peter wrote that when Jesus is reviled, he did not revile, or in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten. And the word revile includes, as we saw, insult, slander, abuse, uh, things too common in the hearing for our our world right now. Uh, It's not possible to obey the command to honor everyone and not keep our conversation gentle and respectful. You can't do it. This requires developing some good habits of communication. Uh, could be ranging in every all the settings from polite disagreements to what to say to yourself. Uh, You're know, we're, we're linguistic animals. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking to ourselves. You know what's the content of that monologue? Uh, if it's bitterness, anger, resentment, grievance. What's going to come out when you talk to other people? Bitterness, anger, resentment, grievance. This is important to passages like Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Peter also wrote that Jesus neither of Jesus neither was deceit found in his mouth. I already talked about this one a bit before, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But this translates the idea that needs to be translated: the idea that we don't use trickery—that's what the word really means—or falsehood to try to, you know, communi- manipulate people or to make a point. Um, we saw it at the beginning of chapter in Peter, chapter two, verse one: "Put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander." Uh, Peter will use it again in chapter 3 before we're done. When he quotes Psalm 34, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Our communication includes or endorses, if it includes endorsing or or has the smallest pieces of fallacy or spin or whatever way you want to put it in it, half-truths, we straight off the path. We're not following in Jesus' steps anymore. We need to be aware of that, really careful of that. Doing that can be a habit just like not doing that can be a habit. What are your habits? What are your practices? It may take a little work at the beginning, but we can make them part of our regular routine lives. I could spend hours up here, probably any number of us could, finding examples of this in our polarized political environment. But I'm just going to resist that and instead offer a reminder about our part in that public conversation. As followers of Jesus, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What that means is we that doesn't mean we don't participate in the institutions of our culture or the political institutions. But on the level of quotidian worship, it may mean we need to spend less time with the news cycles. (laughs) If you spend all your time sitting in front of cable television, news, whichever side it's on, you're going to develop some bad habits, some bad practices, because that's going to form you. Everything forms us in our culture. We need to make our quotidian worship toward the kingdom of God and trust in God. It's aiming our hearts toward the kingdom of God and trust in God. As we have seen in First Peter, living as a disciple can require applying clear scriptural principles to very difficult situations like government. We talked about that. Or being a slave to a non- non-believing owner or marriage. All were situations that certainly tempted, and still tempt, probably, believers to find excuses for alternate behavior or solutions. We aren't given that option. Quotidian worship, as we encounter these difficult situations involving our families, our work, our health, our church, like our regular worship as a body of believers, begins with acknowledging our sovereign and loving God. Peter wrote that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, righteousness is not a word that's very well understood in our culture, particularly. Outside the Bible reading and church services, the most of the times you hear the word righteousness is someone is self righteous. That's a negative thing, it has to do with being, you know, smug, uh, uh, unduly self assured in some way if we're honest with ourselves self-righteousness is a very easy trap to fall into just as it was for the Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' day that he so unsparingly criticized but for the follower of king Jesus to live to righteousness means to have a Christ righteousness now we don't have any righteousness of our own Romans makes that pretty clear So what is a Christ-righteousness? Well, we have to rely on the indwelling Holy Spirit to produce the character of Jesus in our lives. And that character and the conduct that flows from it is called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, which looks an awful lot like a gentle and quiet spirit. What Peter wrote... There, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is precious, is a standard toward which all believers should strive. Peter wrote, You have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Quotidian worship helps us to stay close to our shepherd and guardian. We need habits and practices that generate the kind of behaviors that are in line with the scripture in line with our representation of the kingdom of God and we need to go through the whole work of hard work of getting that done now part of that we do by being into the word part of that we do by coming together and worshiping and encouraging one another but there's a lot we can do in between Sundays so getting back to the text more 1st Peter I just want to wrap up with a quote from a journal article on 1st Peter uh, by a theologian named James Slaughter I think it's a pretty good summary. Peter called the believers to a different spirit, bent on a different purpose. This spirit promotes humility, an attitude that results in behavior characterized by genuine respect. Such behavior does not necessarily connote acquiescence, agreement, or passivity, though it does rule out retaliation. Peter instructed Christians to treat people respectfully and honorably in all their relationships, even when they are treated unfairly. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the guidance that you give to us, as hard as it is for us sometimes to look at and to apply in our lives. I thank you for this fellowship where we can come together and encourage one another, exhort one another, uh, help us to take away what we have here, what we experience here, into our lives every day, and and mold us into the kind of people you want us to be as representatives of your kingdom.